Welcome to Make It Happen. My name is Tom Dalton. Each episode will have an inspiring guest tell their story of overcoming obstacles, never settling, and making it happen. Don't forget to share, subscribe, and review. So grab a coffee. Hope you enjoy the pod. Let's go. Okay, so welcome to Make It Happen. My name is Tom Dalton. I'll be your host today. I'm delighted to say we are on episode number 37 of the podcast. Now, listen up because this I'm excited for this guest and this introduction is probably just the tip of the iceberg. But do you know anyone that has worked with Sir Elton John or Elon Musk? Send people down to see the wreck of the Titanic on the seabed or close museums in Florence for a private dinner party and then hand, had Andre Bocelli serenade them while they eat their pasta. You do now. Quoted as the real-life Wizard of Oz by Forbes Entrepreneur Magazine, Steve Sims is the best-selling author of Blue Fishing, The Art of Making Things Happen. Sought-after consultant and speaker at a variety of networks, group, and associations, as well as the Pentagon and Harvard twice. As the founder, I'm going to take a breath now in a second and let him do all the talk, (laughs) but as the founder of Blue Fishing, one of the top personal concierge services and an expert marketer within luxury industry, Steve has been quoted in various publications, including Wall Street Journal, Forbes, London, uh, London Sunday Times, and I could go on. Steve, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad you didn't. Thank you. I was starting to think I'd have to go and get a coffee. Pleasure <laughs> to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, Steve, so it's kind of interesting how your book got in my hands. Through a friend of a friend, I saw it on a social media probably three or four years ago. And I picked up Blue Fishing. And is it a book I have probably read three or four times now with my highlighter? And it has resonated to me in my business with probably the direct marketing I do to knock on doors and get clients in front of me. So thank you first off, because you've helped me grow my business. I do appreciate that. So Steve, for the listeners, if we're just to jump back, talk to us a little bit about childhood and growing up. (laughs) Wow. Um, Look, I left school at the age of 15, um, straight onto my dad's building site. Um, And then I can, I can jump forward six months. There was a pinnacle moment in my life that I've often been thankful I never missed but you know I got I left school you know early I live in Los Angeles now but as we all know in Europe you you leave school at 16 and then you go to college or whatever my career advisor uh, at the age that I was just turned around and said don't even bother applying for college mate go and get a job and that was it he like he had no hope for me whatsoever so I left school started on the building site and thought this is it. Jeepers, you know, I've left school, which I didn't like, was always in trouble. And now I'm on the building site. And this was in the 80s and 90s when I didn't, I didn't have Instagram to tell me how inadequate my life was. Um, so I'm just thinking, what do I do now? What, what, what do I have? And we didn't have the tools that we have available to us. And then that fateful day came. And I was working in Guildford. And I can remember everything about this day. Working in Guildford for my dad on his building site, and it brought his brother in to help him. And they were light on laborers. So I'm climbing up the ladder with a pile of bricks on my shoulder. I get to the top of the ladder, and there's my dad. Okay. And then next to him, his brother, my, you know, my uncle. He had two kids. So that my cousins were there, 19 and 23 or 24. And then next to them, 
my granddad, who was like in his late 70s, early 80s. And I went, shit, that, there's my family tree there. You know, there's my future. If I could, you know, join Doctor Who and see into the future, here's the chapters. This is it. And my dad just looked at me and yelled at me to put the bricks down. But come tea break time, I ran into this caravan. And my granddad, being so old, was given the respect of being able to sit closer to the heater to warm himself up during this time. And I ran up to him and he's pouring a couple of cup of tea out of the thermos. And I went, granddad, granddad, did you ever think you'd be doing this when you were this old? Now, of course, that's the rudest question you can ask. I need, actually, I need to get some context in it. Need to let you know, my family's County Cork, okay? I'm the first member of our family born on British soil. So the rest of my family are Irish and they make a point of telling me every Christmas that, you know, and you know what it's like. They'll be like speaking really fast and the Guinness is going down. They'll be like, hang on, hang on. let's slow down for the Brit. You know, and I, <laughs> I get, I'm 55 years old now and I get that shit every single year. So anyway, I said to my granddad, massive, great, massive, great bloke. And um, I said to him this, you know, and I, I expected to get a smack on the nose, but he didn't even look at me. He blew into his tea and he went, son, if you don't quit today, you'll be me tomorrow. And I was like, whoa. So I, I left, I quit. Uh, I left the business, uh, left the building site, and I went on a journey to find my riches and fame and fortune which actually consists of a lot of failure and getting fired and a lot of bad jobs that I'm ill qualified to do. But it just grew from there. And I found that I had a take on failure, which to me was nothing unusual. Two things. One, as an entrepreneur, I was pissed off because I believe entrepreneurs, we're aggravated, we're pissed off individuals, and we have to fix things. You know, Elon Musk invented PayPal because he was pissed off that it took five days to wire money from one account in the States to another. Why would it take five days? There's no reason for it. So he invented PayPal that it could be done within seconds. Um, now look at it, everywhere's bloody seconds. So I was aggravated, but I didn't know what I was going for. I also wasn't frightened. And every time I failed at something, it was a case of, oh, well, I now know I can't do that. And, oh, well, I can't do, I'm not gonna do that anymore. And I became, uh, very good at looking into my failures to get the education from it. Along the way, I was a doorman. I started throwing my own parties. I started charging a lot of money for my parties, between $1,000 to $5,000 just to go to one of my parties. Okay? Ridiculous price, but I was always thinking to myself, I only want to deal with rich people. Why? Because I know what poor people are like, because I was poor, and it ain't fun. No matter what the movies say, we all know that on a Wednesday and you got your mortgage to pay on a Friday and you can't sleep and the kids are next door and you can't afford the mortgage, you know it stinks. So I wanted to be able to communicate with rich people and go, well, why are you rich and I'm not? And to do that, I needed to give them something they wanted. They needed to get into parties or they wanted to get close to a celebrity or they wanted to get into an event. And I was like, all right, I'll see what I can do. Now, the Irish are born with it, aren't we? So I would just, I would just go up to people and I'd be like, look, look, I know you're going to be busy tonight, but what time do you want my guest to be here? I wouldn't ask them yes or no, 
I'd go, what time? Do you want him here at 10 or do you want him here at 11? And they'd be like, uh, he's not on the list. Well, that's great. That's not the question I asked. Do you want him here at 10 or do you want him here? And I would just do this and I would just, it just happened. Yeah. Um, along the way, I launched the world's largest and uh, most well-known experiential concierge firm. Didn't expect to. Ended up working with the Grammys, Kentucky Derby, Formula One teams, Monaco Grand Prix, um, the New York Fashion Week, uh, events all over the planet. And in these events were more rich people. So I could ask them the same question. And then three years ago, at a party, I was asked, would I like to, to do a book? Uh, and I was like, yeah, no one's going to believe it, but yeah, let's do it. And doing the book, and for anyone out there that's ever thinking of doing a book, it's intense because you suddenly look inside of how you do it. Because none of us wake up in the morning and think, okay, pick up my right arm, pick up my left arm, move my right leg. Don't forget to breathe. These are all instincts. And a lot of what we do is instincts. So when you start breaking it down as to what you do, you don't start with a big thing. You start with loads of little things that create a big thing. And you start, and I would talk to my ghostwriter. I'd be like, well, I did this, 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 and then I did this. And they'd be like, well, hang on a minute. Let's go back a bit. What were those steps? And I'd be like, oh, I just did that. And they were yeah, but nobody does that. Why were you doing that? And we found out that it was the little, the little hinges to move big doors. The book came out. I didn't expect it to be anything. I'm now here with you. Um, it's now been translated into Chinese, Thai, Vietnamese, Korean, Poland. It sold out in Poland in two hours. Wow. Sold out. Um, and now it's been translated into Russian. Um, and I coach and speak all over the planet now. And basically getting people to stop overthinking shit and start doing. And a, a good friend of mine, Jay Abraham, said to me that um, I have a greater I can than an IQ. And I believe we should all be focusing on our I can because shit, you can get an app for the IQ. Yeah. And Steve, listen, you're at the giving me a synopsis there of your life so far, which is fantastic. <laughs> just to just to touch on Steve, failure and your relationship with failure. Was that something that you learned like as a kid growing up and you just dusted yourself off and go again? Was that the environment you were brought up in? It kind of was until I started realizing that it's one of the single traits every successful person has, okay? See, here's the difference. When you're successful, and notice I'm not saying rich or wealthy, you know, because you don't become rich and wealthy without having the successful mindset. And I noticed that every successful person, when things go wrong, and again, understand that they go wrong way more times than they go right. But it's only got to go right once and you're golden. So a successful person, when it goes wrong, they lean in and they go, all right, well, that failed. Where did it go wrong? And then they learn. And then the next time that doesn't happen again, but something else goes wrong and they go, okay, where did it go wrong? And that's how it works. The entrepreneur, the person out there that goes, oh, being an entrepreneur looks sexy. I'm going to be one of them does something, it fails, and they lean back, hold their head and go, oh my God, it's failed, everything's gone wrong, the wife's going to hate me, the guys down the pub are going to laugh at me, I need to go and get a job at Starbucks. Those are the people that run away from a problem. Successful people lean in. I would try and get a job and I'd get fi uh, fired, and I was too ignorant 
to look at it as a negative. I would be like, oh, well, the positive is from that, that I was good at this, this, and this part of it. My God, I was terrible at this part. Um, I'm not going to do that part anymore. I'll just see if I can find a job that looks up. So that's what I did. I just looked at things and tried to see where the benefit and growth was. I had that mentality as a young lad growing up in East London um, in the 80s and 90s. But as I grew up and I started dealing with successful people, I realized that they took that trait to another level. Very interesting, Steve. Very interesting. Steve, if we go back to your doorman days and you start, I suppose, earning a few quid and things happening, did you step back at any point and go, okay, I need to roadmap this out. How can I make this bigger? Or did it just snowball really quick? It snowballed really quick. Uh, I wrote one business plan in my life, a business that I was going to get involved in. And I remember doing this and it was a 60 page uh, piece of artwork with graphs and, and diagnostics and market research. And a friend of mine looked at it and he went, that's too much effort for the amount of money you're going to make out of it. And I was like, oh, bollocks. You know, and I'd wasted like six months of my life on this. No, I, I have a, in fact, I'll give, for any of you listening, I'm going to give you a million bucks out of my own bank account. Okay. And this is how it's going to be. All you have to do is show me a business plan that was written in 2018 or 2019 that said, we're going to launch this widget. It's going to, it's going to do this. It's going to do this. It's going to do this. It's really going to do well. It's going to get a lot of media, a lot of market attention. Oh, and then by the way, on the 31st of March, it's going to die because a worldwide pandemic is going to come in and we're not going to do anything for a year. You see, a business plan is nothing more than a written idea. Okay. It's a potential. It's a dream. This could happen, this, but it's, it's an idea. So the way I work, if I, if I can write my business plan on, more, on something larger than a stamp, I don't want to do it, you know? But I literally, on the door, I wanted to find a way of me getting into a room with rich people. Now, I knew that they were in the room. I just needed to find a way of talking to them. And as a doorman, I knew where all the cool nights would be. So I had to give them something in order, and it just snowed. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm not going to be able to do this for long. So I may get a couple of parties out of it. I may get a couple of gigs of doing a product launch. I may get this, but I better kind of harvest that money and I better keep the momentum because it ain't going to last long. And it lasted like 25 years. Um, and everything was getting bigger. And I would, I remember I was working for like the New York Fashion Week on marketing, branding and developing in it and getting affluent clients in. And then the owners of the, uh, the uh, New York Fashion Week at the time in Bryant Park were IMG, and they got involved with Naris, and Naris owns the Grammys. And so they were like, hey, do you want to be part of the Grammys? And I'm like, okay, you know, and it literally just went like that. I believe a lot of our ability to go up and forward uh, starts from our ability to be open-minded to see these opportunities and receive these opportunities. And as... Richard Branson always says, you know, say yes, then work out how to do it. Um, and I was that mentality. But I really did think that anywhere in this time, and I've been in Monaco on yachts with like Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I'm stood there going, this is going to be the last party I ever do. 
that I'm never going to be employed again. Because anyone that can see, is, is this video or is it podcast or both? It's podcast, but I'm recording it as video as well. All right. So anyone that's listening to this podcast, I don't look like Hugh Grant. You know, <laughs> I've, I'm 240 pound, bald, tattooed, eyebrow piercing, biker. I've always been that way. And I always focused on the clients rather than what I look like. So I've literally turned up at some of the richest places in the planet on a motorbike with a crash helmet in my hand. And I've always thought, yeah, I may be able to get this gig, but that'll be the last one. I won't be able to get a gig. And it's just snowballed. And I've just grabbed it and grabbed it and grabbed it and never taken it for granted. And often got home with an old fashioned going, how the bloody hell did we do that? <laughs> <laughs> and then we get a call the following week and we're off again. Yeah. And Steve, I suppose along that journey, did you, I, I assume at points you got starstruck, but was there at any stage you were like, wow, this person I can learn a lot of, I could nearly pick this person's brain. He's so, they're so successful. I could use them as a little bit of a mentor. So yes and no, never got starstruck. Okay. okay? Yeah. Because you think about it. If I tell you that your sandwich at lunchtime is going to be the last sandwich you ever have, what are you going to do? Are you going to be in awe of it or are you going to devour it like it's the final meal? You know, you're going to be like, oh my God, I've got to get this in me. You're not going to just stare at it and let it go stale. So when I was given the opportunity to speak with Richard Branson, to speak with Elon Musk, I had the option of, well, I'm going to be starstruck and go, oh, can, can I get a selfie with you? Which will gain me nothing. Or I can have a half-hour conversation with one of the most well-known entrepreneurs in the planet that will benefit me, will benefit my family, will benefit my coaching client. It just didn't make selfie or growth, you know? So it wasn't hard when you do that. So I grabbed every opportunity, never got starstruck, was in awe, and was, was afterwards kind of like, I can't, and I'll phone at my mates in England and go, I can't believe, I just had this. I was just with Elon. I was just with Peter Diamant. I was with Ray Kurzweil, you know? And I'll, I'm very much ex like an excitable kid there. My wife says I'm a 55-year-old, five-year-old. I'm very excited with the rooms that I'm in, but I ain't leaving that room saturating every single piece of information I could possibly get out of it and then using it for my benefit and growth. Yeah. Uh, like Steve, one of the big things I think that has gotten me so far, so far in my career and life is I love networking with people. M my big believer is if you don't ask, you're never going to find out. And like, it's sometimes it's a simple question or can I meet this person for a coffee or what are the opportunities? And sometimes you get no and stuff like that. But I suppose what led you to blue fishing in the States? What was the next part of your journey that got you up the ladder? So I started, I started in Hong Kong. We kind of missed a chapter. I got the chance of a trainee stockbroker's position, another job I was ill-qualified to do. Uh, landed in Hong Kong, got fired, ended up working on the door. So blue fishing was literally me just starting nightclubs and private parties for expatriates and rich Asians. So it started in the Hong Kong area, then went down to Bangkok. Then I started doing a lot more of the European things like Formula One and the Fashion Weeks. So I moved to Switzerland, then I moved to Palm Beach, and then over to LA. So I've literally just been traveling all over the world, still doing this. And my, my, my concierge firm was my Trojan horse to be able to get into these things. And of course, every time 
I got another contract. It got me up another level, surrounded by that level of people. And so it just kept, kept on going. So that's why I kind of went the long way around to where I am now. But I, I want to share a quick story with you, if I may. Absolutely. I, I had a client of mine uh, contact me, and I was working in Rome at the time, and he knew I was in Rome. I always tell my clients where I am. And he said to me that he needed to be in Florence on Wednesday. This was Sunday. Uh, because I need to prov- I need to do a, a dining experience to show off to my mother-in-law and father-in-law how powerful I am. Now, this was uh, a, um, a very powerful Eastern Bloc client, um, very wealthy, but he wanted to show off to the mother and father-in-law that, you know, he had complete control and that his daughter was going to be fine. So, but the key word was experience. Not a meal, not a restaurant, experience. So, I personally, I have this little saying in my head, go for stupid. What goal can you come up with that is so ridiculous that people will laugh at you? Because people always laugh at you just before they applaud. So I'm like, all right, how can this be stupid? Now, just as you're saying, I do this every single time. You know, I want to throw a party in America. Hey, I'll take over the White House. I want to throw a garden party in in UK. Hey, I want Buckingham Palace. And I may well get no. But aiming that high and getting rejected, you catch something on the way down that was still 4,000% higher than the original question. So what I managed to do was I managed to take over the Academia de Galleria Museum in Florence. This is the world-famous museum that houses Michelangelo's David, probably the most iconic statue in the planet. And I set up a table of six at the feet of Michelangelo's David, and then halfway through the client actually eating their pasta, I had Andrea Bocelli come in and serenade them while they were eating their meal. Now, I had goosebumps as this was coming together because I was like, I can't believe I'm in this museum. I can't believe the entire museum's available to me. I can't believe I'm stood next to Andrea Bocelli chatting with him. We even sang together. You know, it was just ridiculous. Um, But here's the funny story that came out of it. The good thing about having powerful clients is you get powerful connections, which gives you powerful credibility when they introduce you. So I managed to get into this museum. When I got into this museum and I gave them my idea and they liked it and they went for it, they gave me this curator that would make sure everything went seamlessly. And this guy, this irritating, good-looking Italian guy with his arms, what seemed to be permanently crossed, who I took for granted just hated me from day one, I would say to him, hey, the, uh, the people setting up the dining table are going to be here at five o'clock tomorrow afternoon. They need to come through the side door. And he would be like, uh, yeah, it, sh- it should be okay. And that's what I got. And then I went, oh, and Andrea's coming. We'll have to make sure he comes through the back door, but he's going to be here at six o'clock. Make sure security's be there. Security will be there. And he'd be like, hey, uh, I will see what I can do. Now, with the connections I had, with the client that I had, with the, with the event I was pulling off, I want more than I will see what I can do. I want, yes, it will be done. That's what I wanted. So on the Wednesday night, the Wednesday night comes along. I had the museum given to me from three o'clock in the afternoon till two o'clock in the morning. 
right? My client got an hour and a half of this. I had like about seven hours, so I got the better end of the deal. But Andrea Bocelli was just warbling and checking out where the piano was going to be so there wasn't too much reverb. If you can imagine a museum with so much marble in it, you know, you cough, and when no one else is in the museum, that cough still goes for 20 minutes. So we had to move things around and put pads under the piano just to kind of like try and kill some of the reverb on it. Uh, so this was all being done by the technicians, and everything had been pulled off by then. Andrea was there, the chef was there, the table. In fact, the only people that weren't there was the client, okay? So everything had been done, everything was set, everything was ready. And I saw the, uh, I saw the curator, and I thought to myself, you know, being an immature little child that I am, I'm going to stick it to him. I'm going to let him know that he pissed me off for the past 24, 48 hours, and that he doesn't mess with me. So I said to me, I won't mention his name, I said, yeah, come over here. And he comes over again, hands crossed, Guy was only like five foot five and I'm six foot, okay? And uh, the guy was like 140 pound wet. And again, I'm 240 pounds. So big difference on size and everything. And I'm looking down at him and I went, look at that table. Can you imagine a better table? Look how beautiful it is to have a meal on. And he's like, yes, it is beautiful. Apologize about my bad accent, but you know, he's there for atmosphere reasons. <laughs> And uh, I said, and look at the view. If you're going to have an Italian meal, is there any better view? And Michelangelo's David, please. And the guy's like, no, it is, a, it is a wonderful, it is beautiful. I said, whoa, hang on a minute. We've got a beautiful table with the best view in the planet. We've got the maestro himself. Now, bearing in mind, Andrea Bocelli is known all over the world, okay? He's revered as basically a god in Italy. And he's getting prepared to sing to you while you're munching your meatballs, <laughs> you know? So this is, this is like out job popping over to do your garden party kind of thing. So the client, I said to the, to the curator, I said, and we've got the maestro, Andrea Bocelli, coming over to serenade them during their meal. Does it get any better than that? And the guy said, no, it is, it is incredible. It is incredible. And I said, all right, so how come I pulled it off? And I expected him to say something like, well, no one's as, as good looking as you. No one's as smooth as you. No one's as connected as you. And he didn't. He had his arms folded and he just looked over and he went, no one's ever asked. And it killed me. It absolutely killed. I physically folded over because I was trying to smack it to him. Yeah, and he yeah. just gave me a bitch slap back to the States. And I was like, that's a good point. And I actually flew back to Los Angeles and I made notes of some of the biggest things I've done with some of the biggest people. And I made a point of when I got home, spending like the next six months, just using it as a reason to generate the connection again. Yeah. But I'd be like, oh, do you remember when we did this? How come we did that? And they'll be like, well, you asked. And I realized it wasn't intelligence. It wasn't position. It wasn't the credibility. Yeah. It was the fact that I dared to ask that I got more yeses than a no. If you think you're not going to get, if you think you're going to get a no, you're right. Yeah. So it just, what is this, Steve, just on that, that like, listen, that is a golden nugget in itself. The story you're just explaining, but Steve, 
What is that? Is that modern times we're in now? Is that us worrying about other people's opinions? Is that social media? What is that? Yes, yes, and yes, and fuck yes. Um, we are terrified about being judged and laughed at and ridiculed. We are terrified of failure and having people laugh at us. You know, how many times are you down at a pub and you go, I've got this idea for a new business. And then you get Joey on the other side of the bar and he's had two beers in him and he's like, that's a stupid idea. That'll never work. Well, of course it'll never work for him because he's not the one that's coming up with the idea. We listen to too many people. We also compare ourselves to this evil little bitch here, this, this cell phone going, well, my life's not as good as his. You know, I've got an Instagram page, Steve D. Sims, and I literally today posted up me on a, on a, on a push bike going, would I be more credible leaning up against a car I didn't own? You know, it's the bottom line of it is, we're into a superficial, visual, rented world where no one actually has any influence. I actually said before that wouldn't it be amazing if all the influencers out there actually had to have achieved something in order to get the title of influencer? We're in a world too much where we're comparing ourselves against other people. We're scared to therefore put ourselves out and we're scared of the ridicule. I'll give you another boring story and you can tell me to shut up if you wish. Just stop there, great. Go on. <laughs> so I was down at uh, the um, uh, SpaceX, um, name drop in there. And I love Elon... it. I love it how you just say, just down at SpaceX. <laughs> there you go, pop it down. And there's a big glass um, uh, HQ center in SpaceX where Elon's in and all the technicians for the rocket launches. Now, do you remember when the rockets were going up into space and he was having the fuel cells come down and land on the floating platform and they would land on the floating platform, tip over and then explode. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you probably saw it on the news, didn't you? Yeah. How many times did you see it on the news with these exploding rockets? Multiple. Yeah. Multiple. How many times have you seen it since? None. Why? You tell me. Because it doesn't explode. You know, the bottom line of it is, all the time it's failing, it's newsworthy. Yeah. The second the guy nailed it, ugh, who else can we laugh at? Who else can we ridicule? Okay? Now, I remember something so startling that I was there, I was on the other side of the glass, I'm with a bunch of people working at SpaceX, we're all watching this uh, fuel cell come down, it comes down, it starts to teeter, it lands on the thing, it falls over, it explodes. A lot of the people on the outside of the glass literally went, oh! Everyone inside, including Elon, suddenly lent into the trajectory, to the data. They lent into the pool. Where did this go wrong? They didn't give a shit. I'm sure he went home and poured a whiskey and went, fuck it, that's 20 million down the pan. Oh, well. But at that moment, he lent in. You see, Elon Musk doesn't give a rat's testes what you think of him. Yeah. Does not care. Yet he constantly, get this, constantly gets in industries that he's ill-qualified to be in. He disrupted banking. He disrupted solar energy. He disrupted the car industry. He disrupted space technology. Okay? He doesn't care about your opinion. 
He's not looking for people to give him cheerleading. He's not looking for people to laugh at him. He doesn't care because he's on a mission to get it done for him. Too many people today, and there's a, 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 an addendum or an amendment to this statement, too many people today are concerned about other people's views and opinion and how it makes them look. And they're scared of doing something for fear of failure. Well, if we change the, if we change the parameter of what failure is, which is it's an education, that fear of being educated, okay? And that fear of the frightening of getting into conversations. And today, in a world where AI is, is growing crazy, we're frightened to get into conversations. We're frightened of saying what it is we want. We're terrified to communicate in a generation and an era and an era and a period when we should be communicating more. We should be having the conversations that we are scared to have. We are should be having, we should be having difficult conversations, whether it be about sexism, racism, politics, the, the, the royal family, whatever it is, we should be having those conversations rather than shielding and frightening and closing down our social platforms in case what we say is taken out of context. Fuck that. We should be talking loud and becoming educated on what is right and what is wrong and then becoming educated from that. Brilliant. Listen, Steve, amazing. Steve, just one point I want to pick up on there. Um, for any of the listeners, you t- and you're at the going through some amazing lessons there, would you say it's more about putting in the reps to be successful, to build up that resilience, to not care what other people think, to fail? Is there ad- any advice you'd give there? Um, it becomes easier. It becomes easier. You, you, you're right there. You know, you, the first time you try something, well, let me help you. The first time you do anything, it's going to be shit. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Now, I have not heard, and I'm pretty sure no one's heard, your first ever podcast. Because I'm yeah. sure as shit, you probably never even released that. Because yeah. it was probably a pile of steam in turd, okay? Yeah. Whatever you do today is going to be shit compared to how it is in two years' time, in a year's time. So as an entrepreneur, if you just allow yourself that that you know seal of approval that, hey, I'm going to try something, it's going to be shit, but I'm going to start. Because it can't be brilliant until it starts off shit, Okay. If you have that mentality and then you, as you're doing stuff, you'll notice that there's cheerleaders around you, there's jeerers around you, and there's challengers around you. The challenger is the person that turns around and says, well, Tom, why are you doing that? Yeah, how does that benefit what you're doing? How does that benefit you financially? How does that make you, how's the effort you're using on that? That's a challenger. You want challengers cheerleaders to go oh that was fantastic i love you that's your granny yeah great but it ain't getting you anywhere and then you've got the jeevers tommy in the pub going you can't do that that's when you suddenly start moving away from certain people and any entrepreneur out there that is feeling a little bit different feeling that when they have conversations with their mates in pubs they have to kind of either dumb it down dilute it or not really have the conversation that they want to have anyone out there that's feeling a little bit different as though they don't fit in. Well, let me break it to you, Susie. You were never meant to entrepreneurs don't fit in. Okay. 
We're meant to make what we do and we're meant to get out there. And the beautiful thing about today that we didn't have back in the 80s and 90s is this could be as simple as subscribing to a podcast. It could be as simple as joining a Facebook group. I, I have a Facebook group called An Entrepreneur's Advantage with Steve Sims. Free of charge. And we just talk about things that worked, didn't work, failed. You can join any kind of group out there and suddenly realize that originally you were in the wrong room. There's nothing wrong with you. You were just in the wrong room. Change your scenery. Change the people you hang around with. If you want to know about doing a podcast, speak to this guy. Yeah. Don't speak to your mate at the pub who hasn't got a podcast. Speak to someone who has one. So change the room you're in to realize that, hey, you are different. And that's fine. Yeah, brilliant. And Steve, if we talk about, so you do amazing events and experiences, you say, for your clients. Did it get to a stage where they were all coming to you because the level of clientele you had? And it wasn't like, I want a bigger and better and bolder experience than my rich friend down the road. No, it didn't. It never got to it never got to that. See, bearing in mind my company for 25 years didn't have an email or a phone number on the website. Okay. You know, if you knew me, you knew me. If you didn't yeah. know me, you know, I would go to parties where the guy that was throwing the parties owned something like a country. I literally, and I'm not kidding you this, I was literally handed a set of keys by a, a guy coming into the party going, oh, I forgot to give them to the valet boy. Uh, there you go. And gave them to me thinking I was security or something. And I'm like, all right, cheers. And I didn't care. Um, and I've been at parties as well. And people said to me, um, what do you do? And I said, uh, oh, I'm with the valet boys, but I'm actually on break. So I just snuck in for a couple of drinks. And I've just said so. And then they've gone, and then they've gone oh, okay. And then they've moved away from me, spoken to the person that owns the party, and then come back to me and go, you little bastard, you know? And so, so no, what I do is I'm out there, as I say jokingly, to make your cocktail sto stories more interesting via your checkbook. You know, that's what I do. So I was always a referral-based business. And my coaching uh, is also the same way as well. I, I'm very particular. And this, I think, comes down to my door work. I noticed as a doorman, if I let anybody into the club, it was only a matter of time before there were fights, there were scuffles and all that kind of crap. If I controlled my front door and was very specific about who I let in, I removed 99% of the problems inside. And that's how I run my business. The, the egotistical prick that says, hey, I want a bigger, bigger thing than what he had. That's not important. You know, I may get paid, but I'm now working with an egotistical prick. The nine times out of 10 is going to say something that's going to discourage any future clients coming your way. So I was always very careful at making sure that I took on the client. And this is important, especially for new time entrepreneurs. I was always very focused on taking on the client and not taking on the checkbook. Because when you look at a person just for the dollar signs that you're going to make out of them, you don't get to connect with what it is they really want. And the trouble is what you end up with is a lot of very shallow, rich people that just piss you off. And I didn't want that. And Steve, was it's one thing I think I've gotten a lot better at in the last couple of years, learning to say no. Oh, yeah. How, how, how did you find that, I suppose, in your business? <laughs> Probably just like you, by screwing up. 
uh, and not saying no when you should have done. See, I only know how to look at people rather than their checkbooks because originally I looked at their checkbooks and not the people and ended up with a client bank that I never, ever wanted to see in my life. Um, so you learn all of these experiences. You take on deals and go, yeah, I can do that. And then realize I shouldn't have taken that on. So it all comes from experience. The worst thing about an entrepreneur is, and, and there's an old joke, how do you make an entrepreneur go bankrupt? You say to them, I bet you couldn't do this for $10. And the, and the entrepreneur, you already know it in your head. The entrepreneur is not looking at the $10. They're looking at the challenge. You know, you've laid the gauntlet down and they'll spend a million dollars to earn that $10. So, you know, entrepreneurs are very much like that. One of the most powerful, two most powerful lessons I ever learned was one, what I'm not good at. Okay. As an entrepreneur, when we start, we put the coffee on, we answer the phone, we do the sales call, we do the invoicing, we send the products, we do everything. Then as we start getting bigger, we go, well, I do everything because that's the way I've always done it. And what you realize is you're actually doing everything so-so. What you've got to do is realize what are my elements of unicorn? What am I really good at? And then outsource the rest. If you don't know about writing a, a website, get a website designer. If you're not very good at invoicing, get an online CFO that'll handle all of your invoicing. If you're not very good at doing um, you know, subscriptions and models like that, get someone else to do it. But learning to outsource your inadequacies or inabilities, so all that's left for you to do every single day is what you're brilliant at. That's the point you want to get to. But you first got to realize that there's things that are not really in your wheelhouse. And you've got to understand sooner or later that no is probably your best friend to learn. Absolutely. You've, you've answered, I've been saying that you've answered one of my questions already. Um, but Steve, a question I ask my guests, regrets. How do you process regrets or do you forget about them or just move forward? Or what do regrets mean to you? Well, they're all education. Um, I think people, when they say, oh, I try not to live with regrets or things, it's because they haven't learned from them. I've done some things in my life that I'm not proud of. I've lost deals that I've gone, oh, shit, that would have made me a lot of money. I've taken on deals and worked with them badly and burnt bridges. But all of those regrets have turned into education that have never been repeated. You know, so I look at when I've burnt a relationship, hey, I'm sorry that relationship went south. I know I'm not going to be able to get it back, but it's taught me enough that I'm never going to allow it to happen again anywhere else. So for me, regrets are really just how you earn your MBA, your doctorate, your PhD, their education. And Steve, just in the current climax, how how is COVID or the pandemic? How did it affect you? Or are you a man that thinks there's opportunity everywhere? So I live in Los Angeles. And every time you come off of the slip roads on the 101s or any of the highways, there's usually someone at the bottom of the corner that's selling flowers on Valentine's Day, that's selling teddy bears, that's selling just member anything, any day that seemed to be selling something. You know, there may be a churro stand or something. So back in March, because it was in March when uh, Los Angeles got locked down, 
um, I was coming off the, uh, the slip road and they were selling flowers. Now, I've never bought anything from this couple in my life. And there's a male and a female on either side of the highway uh, runoff selling flowers. And they got all these flowers in the baskets. And, you know, I rode past them. I went home. Then they came the lockdown. And then I was down the road and I came back about a week later and I came off that slip road. And at the bottom of the slip road are these two people. And they were selling face masks. Now, at the time, we hadn't been told to wear face masks. It wasn't an ordinance. We hadn't been compelled. This was one week after shutdown, and they had this big board selling face masks. And then the following week when I went down there, they were selling face masks, and they were selling sanitizer. And I thought to myself, this couple... They're not millionaires. They're not billionaires. They didn't study marketing at Harvard. But if they can pivot in a month, in a, in a matter of hours to greet what the marketplace needs, then what's your excuse? So I literally analyzed everything I had. And okay, how can I pivot for it to be more receptive to the marketplace? Started doing more Zoom stuff, started doing more phone calls, started doing more virtuals. Started doing more phone calls, funny enough. Started sending people books. One of my early things was I would send people books going, hey, you got time on your hands now. This was a book that helped me. Here it is. For you. And started sending my clients books. And they're like, thank you so much. I started increasing the connection and the relationships I had because that's what I needed to do. And, you know, I'll say loudly, I think COVID has been one of the best things that's ever happened to me. Because as a friend of mine said to me, Tucker Max, he said, I knew I loved my family, but I didn't know how much I liked them. And I'm at home with two kids and my wife and two dogs, have been for over a year. And I'll be completely honest with you, I haven't had to be on a plane, I haven't had to be on a stage, I haven't had to be flying across the world doing something. I've been able to wake up with my wife every single morning have my toast, sit on the patio, drink a cup of coffee. I don't know how ready I am to go back to the manic life. I'm certainly going to try and control it and keep some of the priorities. But I think, I think you should look at COVID and everyone out there should go, hey, what did COVID do for me? Not to me. We know what it did to you. What did it do for me? What did it benefit me in? And if it didn't benefit you in anything, that's got to be the saddest person in the world. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Listen, I think you've covered this already, but is there anything like a quote or a best piece of advice, Steve, that always sticks with you? Got to go Irish. Got to finish <laughs> Irish. So my dad, um, the bricklayer, passed away. Um he weren't the sharpest tool in the shed. Uh, it was a big bunch of love till you, you know, pissed him off. And then he came out feisty. I'm sure you've never heard of that before. Um, <laughs> but I was walking through London with him once and he was a chain smoker. You know, he, he had one cigarette that was being puffed and he had another cigarette in his hand so that when this one got low, he could start the other one up and carry on. It, it was, you know, like packets a day. You know, I don't know how many packets a day. And he never died of cancer, you know, died of old age. Go figure. So walking down the road and I'm 
15, 14 years old. I hadn't started working for him then. I was still at school. Uh, but we were walking through a building site. And uh, he's got his, you know, the, the cigarette that hasn't been lit up. He puts it on my shoulder. Doesn't look at me. Still walking. And he says, son, no one ever drowned by falling in the water. They drowned by staying there. Takes his hand off my shoulder, lights up the cigarette, puts it in his mouth, carries on walking. Never missed a beat. Never looked at me. But I stopped. And I was like, what the fuck was that? You know, what was, where did that go? I thought it'd been consumed by a fortune cookie or something. I was like, we weren't speaking beforehand. We never spoke after, but he just came out with this. And it stuck with me at the time because it was just so weird. But I realized as entrepreneurs, and I reckon secretly deep down somewhere, he must have been an entrepreneur because he was realizing it. And he gave me this nugget. And the amount of times in my life I've fallen in the water by trying something that I couldn't do, accepting a contract, accepting a person, just whatever. And I've fallen in the water and I've just gone, all right, I could stay here and drown. Mm. But it's also my option not to. So I would have to finish up with the, uh, the words of my dad that no one drowned from falling in the water. They drowned by staying there. Brilliant. Amazing. Listen, Steve, I'm going to fire some quick fire questions at you. I'm obviously conscious of your time. Uh, two things just on business. What do you love about it and what do you hate? Uh, I hate invoicing. So I outsource that. Uh, but I love creating impact and getting people uncomfortable to challenge them to do things differently. Brilliant. Um, if you could have a meal with any five people, dead or alive, who would it be? Five. I've often had that question with two or three, but I haven't had it with five. Yeah. So um, I'm going to uh, Michael Jackson. Okay. Uh, I know what my three are going to be, so I'm trying to think of my other two. I'd go with Michael Jackson. Uh, I would go with... Oh, dead or alive. Um, oh. Well, I don't know who my last one would be, but I'll give you my three regulars. Jesus, Margaret Thatcher, Hitler. I would like to be able to find out, you know, what gave Jesus the strength while everyone was against him? What gave Margaret Thatcher the strength when as a woman she shouldn't have had the power according to everyone else, that she did, yet she was the Iron Lady. And Hitler, why were you trying to create a master race of blue-eyed blonde people from Germany when you were a short-ass brown-eyed boy from Austria? Because once you had done what you were hoping to do, they would eventually eradicate you. It, it didn't make sense to me. And again, Michael Jackson and... Um, Probably a mixologist from a famous bar that could just keep me going and the rest of us with old fashions. I love there it. There you go. You're the second person who's actually mentioned Hitler of my guests in the, in the five people. <laughs> they just wanted to get inside his brain, which is interesting. Yeah, um, yeah, it's got to be freaky in there. Yeah. Uh, Steve, just last couple. Um, any book recommendations or podcasts, obviously, other than your own stuff? Um, yes, yes obviously outside of my fantastic piece of art. Um, I would say that, uh, especially today, Jordan Harbinger, 
trust me, I'm lying. It was relevant then. It's it's critical now. Trust me, I'm lying. By uh, uh, not um, by Ryan uh, Ryan Holiday. Sorry, uh, Ryan Holiday. Yeah, not I said Jordan Harbinger, didn't I? So Ryan Holiday. Trust me, I'm lying. And Nair Eal, and I'll spell that N I R, and then his last name is Eal E Y A L. He was a Silicon Valley genius and techie. He wrote a book called Hooked. It talks about how old Silicon Valley grabs your attention and then sends you down rabbit holes and how it operates you. And there's a famous saying that says in Silicon Valley that if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. So those two books. Brilliant. Listen, Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, Where can people stay connected with you or find you? Um, an entrepreneur's advantage with Steve Sims is my free Facebook group. If you want to talk with me, uh, simsdistillery.com is my private online community. But you can find all of this on Steve D Sims, S I M S dot com. Uh, it's got everything on the website where you can find me, my events, my speaking gigs, the whole works. Once again, I have gotten energy from this. People create energy. If you haven't read Blue Fishing, if you haven't seen any of this guy's videos, whether you're a business person or not a business person, check him out because it's going to put positivity and good energy in your life. So thank you again, Steve Sims. Absolute pleasure to have you on. It's been an honor. Thank you. That was awesome, man. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Well, I'm glad we got it put in. Do, do let me know when it comes out and where it comes out so I can give it a little nudge. Absolutely. Will you do me two favors? I want to send you a nice bottle of whiskey to thank you. How could I say no? And a handwritten card. And also, I would you send me or will I get your PA to send me just a picture for the podcast just so I can put it up as a watermark? Yeah, I'll, I'll bung them both up now. I've got your address from the invite, so I'll send it over to you. Um, I'll send it over to you in a few minutes. Brilliant. Listen, enjoy your Wednesday, my man, and take care and the best of luck with everything going forward. Cheers, mate. All the best. Bye. Appreciate it.